Welcome to episode 222 on the merit of doing nothing. This is the Sunday Letters podcast, part of the Sunday Letters Journal. Read and listen to all previous episodes and issues of the newsletter over at sundayletters.larrygmaguire.com. There's a link at the top of the show notes, probably one or two in between and one at the bottom. Uh, This podcast is free. Although if you decide to become a paying subscriber, it'll cost about three euros or three euros fifty or three dollars fifty uh, a month, about the price of a good cup of coffee. You'll get uh, subscriber-only episodes, short little extracts, and uh, other articles that are reserved for paying subscribers and supporters of of the Sunday Letters Journal. So if you decide to do that, I'd be very grateful. If not, you can listen for free. It's a free episode. And if you're so inclined, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to uh, your podcasts. Uh, Tell us what you think of the show. Give us a few stars. Help people people find what I'm doing and lets me know what you think of this material. So this week I'm talking about the merit of doing nothing or switching off and tuning out of doing the opposite to being busy. And what got me on this topic this morning, I had planned something completely different, but uh, an item appeared in my feed on LinkedIn about um, a piece of research that was reported in The Guardian on the merits and the benefits in and the, the, the ability to uh, access our creativity when we actually switch off from thinking. And it is true and it's been reported in a number of different places by by many writers, the benefit in switching off and going off for a wander and doing things that are not associated with work. Call it rest, recuperate, recuperation, whatever you want to call it. But it's it's the absence of thinking and and trying to solve the problem or get where we want to go. We live in a world that's very much hinged to a, the idea that You've got to be active. You've got to be productive. You've got to be working your ass off. You've got to work all the hours that are sent in order to make enough money, in order to be of enough value to other people, to the corporation, to the company, to your customers, whoever. And it's really a foolish idea. We're, we're so welded to the nuts and bolts idea of life, to the practicalities of life, to the ones and the zeros. And if it's not a one or a zero, if it's not, um, if we're not active enough, if there's no data to read, if we're acting on a whim or an apparent whim, well then that's that's not valuable at all. In fact, it's useless. So to play, for example, is something you do when you're finished work, when you're finished being active and getting stuff done. You know, because you're a practical human being and, you know, in order to get ahead in the world, you've got to be a doer and you've got to go after it, you know, embrace the hustle and all this kind of nonsense. And um, it's because I suppose we live in a technological society, uh, a digital society, and we've been this this our hegemonic common sense about work suggests that. You've always got to be active and it's the value is in the data and the data will tell you everything you need to know. Like as if we can predict the future, 
and we know we can't. The weather forecast can't even be predicted. And why do you think, as a human being, as a, one one kind of single cell in this multicellular organism we call life, why is it that you think that you can predict and determine your future when nothing else can be predetermined? It arrives and it's magical almost. And we should be content with that. But instead, we want to analyze the shit out of everything. And we have to work our asses off in order to be valuable to ourselves and other people. And it's a nonsense. So what do we do? We keep working and we work and we work and we work. And we try to make things happen and we try and circumvent the inevitable, try and get around through the back door and cheat and try to um, get ahead of all the nasty shit that we <laughs> that we think is going to come. And it does come because life is life is a coin with two sides, but it's all a waste of time. A lot of it. So this article appeared in my feed this morning and it was about the importance of taking time out. And it, it really is critical. Uh, I immediately thought of three books, four books, maybe even more, where um, I previously read about the importance of taking time to do nothing. Um, I couldn't find this book this morning, but Carlo Ravelli is a quantum gravitational uh, physicist, Italian bloke. You probably read his stuff. Um, he's a couple of really good books and audiobooks uh, on the nature of reality, uh, uh, time and space, etc., etc. It's very readable. It's not too heavy, you know. Um, and I think it's in the introduction to. I can't remember the name of the book, but he speaks about how how valuable his time, um, away from study. It was like a year. Maybe I think he took a year off to just kind of loaf about in the States or whatever and uh, and just to kind of do whatever he felt like doing. And he, his commentary was around the idea that we often think that this time young people take to do nothing and to loaf off and do whatever they want to do is wasted. Um, I know one particular uh, adult um, parent of, of, a, of a kid I know and she couldn't wait to get her son into school. And I think he'll be like 16 or not far gotten 16 when he's finished his leaving cert, when he's left school and ready for third level. And it strikes me that the kid doesn't and hasn't been afforded the time to just do nothing, you know, and we discount the value in it. Anyway, I'm I'm rambling. So I read this article and... Um, it was in the Guardian. Uh, just want to pull it up here. So the article says that losing oneself in one's thoughts or letting the mind wander is an underrated activity that is most rewarding the more it is practiced. An academic study has claimed. Like as if you need as if you need an academic study to tell you that, right? Psychologists who studied a group of more than 250 people encouraged them to engage in directionless contemplation or free floating thinking said that the activity was far more satisfying than the participants had anticipated. The academics from the University of Tübingen 
I'm probably pronouncing that completely wrong, in southern Germany, were keen to find out why, despite being the only species capable of sitting still and thinking to themselves, are we? Really? I don't know about that. Humans are generally reluctant to make use of this talent. All right, blah, blah, blah. So these articles, they're, they're, they tend to be written, you know, to, in a particular way, which is kind of skirts around the detail. But anyway, it got me thinking, and uh, I pulled out three or four books that that um, highlight the importance of taking time to do to do nothing. Um, and one of them was, better I can't find the passage now. I had the page open, and... Um, it's gone. Where is it? So this is uh, Catching the Big Fish by um, David Lynch, the director of Twin Peaks and numerous other, um, what's that movie? He, uh, he did Dune back in the 80s and it was a disaster. Dune was, uh, he. there was other people involved in the project and he didn't have creative uh, final word or final say on the project, which is why it was spoiled. Um, I remember watching an interview. He he mentioned that previously, but um, Twin Peaks, uh, Machine Machine Eraser Head was another one of his. I think it was probably his first big movie. So he says in the introduction to um, Catching the Big Fish, ideas are like fish. If you want to catch little fish, you can stay in the shallow water, but if you want to catch big fish, you've got to go deeper, down deep. The fish are more powerful and more pure. They're huge and abstract, and they're very beautiful. I look for a certain kind of fish that is important to me, one that can translate to cinema. But there are all kinds of fish swimming down there. There are fish for business, fish for sports. There are fish for everything. Everything, anything that is a thing, comes up from the deepest level. Modern physics calls that level the unified field. The more your consciousness, your awareness, is expanded, the deeper you go towards this source and the bigger the fish you can catch. And the space that you can actually get into that unified field, as he calls it, is through meditation. He's a big advocate of transcendental meditation. It's a, a way to shut off the brain, shut off the mind, shut off the brain, shut off the conversation in our head. Um. My 33-year practice of transcendental meditation program has been central to my work in film and painting and to all areas of my life. For me, it has been the way to dive deeper in search of the big fish. In this book, I want to share some of those experiences with you. I'd recommend it. It's, uh, it's got these little passages. They're like tiny little one or two page or even half page commentaries on them, what he calls catching the big fish. Um, there's another one I read in a recent shorter issue of Sunday Letters uh, subscriber only um, episode, a bonus episode. He says, he quotes Bush, Bushnell Keeler, the father of his friend Toby, who had the expression, if you want to get one hour of good painting in, you have to have four hours of uninterrupted time. And he basically goes on to say that if you want to work and produce something productive, you've got to create a big space where you can allow that to to kind of percolate and develop and become something. Otherwise, you're just chasing your tail. Um, so finding this time, this kind of no, no time, kind of useless space, not useless, it's very useful, but 
space where we are are doing nothing in particular to um, help generate creative thoughts and new ideas is central. Um, in the book Play by Stuart Brown, he says, play provides freedom from time. When we are fully engaged in play, we lose a sense of the passage of time. We also experience diminished consciousness of self. We stop worrying about whether we look good or awkward, smart or stupid. We stop thinking about the fact that we are thinking. In imaginative play, we can even be a different self. We are fully in the moment, in the zone. We are experiencing what the psychologist Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi calls flow. Um, I wrote a story or an article uh, about this book, Play, by Stuart Brown. The Seven Properties of Play. It's there in Sunday Letters if you want to give it a read. But um, Csikszentmihalyi wrote Creativity, the Psychology of Dis- and the, the Psychology of Discovery and Invention. And he talks about this time as well, kind of this black box, uh, unknowable, un- unknowable aspect of us. He calls uh, this section in his book, The Mysterious Time. After a creative person senses that on the horizon of his or her experience, there is something that does not fit, some problem that might be worth tracking. The process of creativity usually goes underground for a while. The evidence for incubation comes from reports of discoveries in which the creator becomes puzzled by an issue and remembers coming to a sudden insight in the nature of the problem, but does not remember any intermediate conscious mental steps. Because of this empty space in between sensing a problem and intuiting its solution, it has been assumed that an indispensable stage of incubation must have taken place in an interval of the conscious process. So the conscious process is that conversation going on in our head, the active attempt to come up with a solution, to be creative, you know, or to act natural. It's bullshit. You can't, you can't um, be creative on cue or you can't, act natural on cue unless you're a talented actor in which case you're not being yourself so to speak you're being someone else which is what did david lynch mention that where did i where did i read that i think it was david lynch so just be yourself um if someone tells you that you've probably heard it being said before it's a bit of a nonsense because you are who you are anyway um so Csikszentmihalyi talks about this kind of black black spot black box stage of creativity, and he goes on because of its mysterious quality. Incubation has often been thought of the most creative part of the entire process. The conscious sequences can be analysed to a certain extent by the rules of logic and rationality, but what happens in the dark spaces defies ordinary analysis and invokes the original mastery shrouding the work of genius, one feels almost the need to turn to mysticism to invoke the voice of the muse as an explanation. Our respondents unanimously agree that it is important to let problems simmer below the threshold of consciousness for a time. One of the most eloquent accounts of the importance of this stage comes from the physicist Freeman Dyson 
in describing his current work, he has this to say. I am fooling around, not doing anything, which probably means that this is a creative period. Although, of course, you don't know until afterwards. I think that it is very important to be idle. I mean, they always say that Shakespeare was idle between plays. I'm not comparing myself to Shakespeare, but people who keep themselves busy all of the time are generally not creative, so I am not ashamed of being idle. Frank Offner is equally strong in his belief in the importance of not always thinking about one's problem. He says, I will tell you one thing that I have found in both science and technology. If you have a problem, don't sit down and try to solve it, because I will never solve it if I am just sitting down and thinking about it. It will hit me maybe in the middle of the night while I am driving my car or taking a shower or something like that. How long a period of incubation is needed varies depending on the nature of the problem. It may range from a few hours to several weeks or even longer. Manfred Eigen says that he goes to sleep every night mulling some unresolved problem in his mind, some experimental procedure that does not work, some laboratory process that is not quite right. Miraculously, when he wakes up in the morning, he has the solution clearly in mind. Hazel Henderson jogs or does gardening when she runs drive ideas, and when she returns to the computer, they usually flow freely again. Elizabeth Noel Newman needs plenty of sleep, otherwise she feels that her thoughts become routine and predictable. Donald Campbell is a very clear is very clear about the importance of letting ideas make connections with each other without external distractions. One of the values in walking to work is mental meandering, or if driving, not to have the car radio on. Now, I don't think of myself as necessarily especially creative, but this creativity has to be a profoundly wasteful process. And that mental meandering, mind wandering and so on is an essential process. If you are allowing the mentation to be driven by the radio or the television or other people's conversations, you are just cutting down on your exploratory, your intellectual exploratory time. I think that speaks for itself. Um, thinking. It. Most of us believe that that thing we call ourselves exists on the surface. So the one that talks inside our head, so to speak, is us. And we look in the mirror and we examine how we look and we say, that's me. And the language that we speak in our head, whatever language is your first language, those conversations are us. And that's all okay. It maybe it is to a certain extent, but there is another deeper aspect to us. And in order to allow, in order for us to be creative, we've got to allow that time. Time in the sense, I don't mean linear time. Uh, it's more apt to call it space. So we need to give that aspect of us space. I was speaking to someone recently um, about writer's block and he was uh, affected by it terribly. Couldn't write and was getting really uptight and upset about the fact that he couldn't write. I've got, I've got writer's block, he said. And he did, as far as he was concerned. But 
the mistake that was being made was that he was trying to think himself out of it. And you can't do that. You can't think yourself enough. There's not enough thinking that you and I can do that will solve the problem, whatever the problem is, or come up with something wonderful. We've got to allow ourselves the space for other stuff to come in. We're just a point of awareness almost of something else that goes on. It's like I was saying about the points of data. It's like language. If you listen to the bonus episode um, on, what was that on? The recent bonus episode, I was talking about uh, our fixation in this technological society with data and data points and how, you know, business is driven by data. Uh, uh, we're driven by data being the numbers in our bank account and the amount of hours that we work. You're, you're looking for a job and they say, you, the job involves 39 hours per week or 37 hours per week and blah, 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 blah. And these are the things you need to do. And then you're measured on that. And you're assessed on on your performance in 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 those spaces and on those data points and um, this is how we live and most people work for other people in America, in the United States, ninety four percent of the workforce works for other people. I find that's that's statistic remarkable actually, um, seeing as we're talking about data points. So only six percent of the working adults in America work for themselves. So most people are being bossed around and told what to do, when to come in and when to go home and all the rest of it. Now, I know there's big changes occurring in the world of work and people are presenting the middle finger and saying, no, I'm not doing that anymore. But most people work for other people. And so we follow the rule and we live on the surface where uh, our value and our worth is measured always. It's measured by, by the number in our bank account, the car that we drive, the clothes that we wear, the job that we have, the status in society, all of these things. And we're obsessed with it. And this is probably the biggest problem human beings have because we don't have time or space to be creative or to switch off because we're always switched on. We're always working our bollocks off trying to earn a crust. And when we're not working, we're thinking about work. And leisure time, so-called leisure time is time we can actually get away from the work and being switched on. And we know that it's completely exhausting and that it causes all kinds of psychological ailments um, like anxiety and overstress and burnout and depression. And um, all of these things are detrimental to human health. And eventually it's born in the body and the body then reflects all of the nastiness that we experience, first of all, psychologically. And we carry that with us. And we think that this is life. And this isn't life at all. Well, it is. It's what we've made it. But the truth of the matter is, we need time to switch off. And um, until we figure that out, we'll continue to fuck things up. Like, look at the state of the planet. The whole global warming situation and um, the freak weather um, that we've had all over the world. And um, the the is it a pandemic? The epidemic that is mental illness and it can easily be resolved by changing our attitude and our focus away from busy 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 to okay i'm just gonna i'm just gonna work what would it i'm just gonna work the time that i want to work 
And the problem is we're our own, we're our own worst enemies because we fuel this way of life by our consumer, our consumer oriented way of living. And so we're convinced that we need all of this stuff. We're convinced that we need loans and all this kind of thing. And so we get into debt and then we have to work even harder to pay off that debt. And it's a, it's a destructive cycle. Um, it's a destructive cycle and it's up to us to get ourselves out of it. Another little book that I recommend you get your hands on is one by a guy called Alan Lightman. He's a mathematician. I think he's a physicist as well. Physicist, yeah. It's called In Praise of Wasting Time. It's a short little book. Uh, and in it, he says, when the school day ends, our children are loaded with piano lessons and dance lessons and soccer games and everything else. Our university curricula are so crammed that our young people don't have time to digest and reflect on the material they're supposed to be learning. I plead guilty myself. If I take the time to examine my own 24 hours per day, here's what I find. From the instant I open my eyes in the morning until I turn out the lights at night, I am at work on some project. First thing in the morning, I check my email. For any unexpected opening of time that appears during the day, I rush to patch it as if to tear, as if a tear in my trousers. I find a project. Indeed, I feel compelled to find a project to fill up the hole. If I have an extra hour, I can work at my laptop on an article or a class lesson. If I have a few minutes, I can answer a letter or read an online news story. With only seconds, I can check my phone messages. Unconsciously, without thinking about it, I have subdivided my day into smaller and smaller units of efficient time use until there are no holes left, no breathing spaces remaining. I rarely goof off. I rarely follow a path that I think might lead to a dead end. I rarely waste time. And certainly, I would never ever spend a couple of hours each day going to the market without knowing exactly what to how long to, the trip should take and figuring out how to listen to an audiobook on the way. It's not only me. All around me, I feel a sense of urgency, a vague fear of not being plugged in, a fear of not keeping up. I feel like Joseph K. in Kafka's The Trial, who lives in a world of ubiquitous suspicion and powerful but invisible authority. Yet there is no authority here, only a pervasive mentality. That kind of paints a realistic picture of most people's lives. And we we carry on this way um, and we feel guilty when we're not working, you know. Um, I've over the last probably, I'd say, 10 years, certainly six or seven, I've learned I've learned um, to switch off and I've become more comfortable with it. I'm actually I have become comfortable, although I have to mean I have to remind myself I've become comfortable uh, not getting up early, you know, not chasing after uh, that elusive whatever happens to be. I've trained myself out of this way of thinking that the more I work, the better I am, the more I achieve. I did it for a long time. It's completely exhausting. And to be truthful, brought me to my knees. So I had no choice. And this is the unfortunate reality, I feel, that we keep pushing and pushing and pushing until we can't do it anymore. 
and we bring ourselves to a halt either because of a medical condition or because whatever the project we were doing or the work, we lose our job or the work we are doing fails or nobody buys what it is we made or whatever happens to be. And we're forced to stop. And um, it doesn't have to be that way, but for many of us, it is, you know. Um, There was another, um, yeah, there was another quote I wanted to read you from David Lynch. He says, well, there's a, he was in an interview and this book is mainly built around an interview he had with, um, is it Chris Rodley? I don't know. Anyway, the interviewer says, uh, they're talking about dreams and how dreams informs David Lynch, uh, gives him inspiration for movies and what have you, scripts. Um, he says, dream time is an obvious cornerstone of your cinema. Is it important in your life? And Lynch says, waking dreams are the ones that are important, the ones that come when I'm quietly sitting in a chair, gently letting my mind wander. When you sleep, you don't control your dreams. I like to dive into a dream, a world that I've made or discovered, a world I choose. Kind of sums it up. And um, I suppose the nucleus of this episode today is or the message I'd like to get across is the not only you know the value in doing nothing or the merit in doing nothing but the critical importance there is to doing nothing for our own particular state of mind and our health um, uh, being busy all the time breeds anxiety when we're chasing an ideal future self or we're chasing someone else's idea or, or we're chasing that um, acceptance of other people and other things. Maybe it's your father, maybe it's your mother, maybe it's society, maybe it's whoever it happens to be for you. So we chase it. And we chase it and we chase it and we chase it and we sacrifice so much along the way, not least our own particular well-being. And it's so important in a time when, uh, a time for us where to be switched on is simply the way life is, that we have to find time to switch off. And without that, we suffer. It's something that I ask clients to do when I'm in one-to-one sessions. So. If uh, can leave you with this, maybe that you can try. If the stress and the pressure of always pushing, always being switched on is getting to you, you feel anxious, you feel uptight, you feel pressured, you feel like you're hitting burnout. Do these things. First of all, get a journal, a moleskin, a moleskin journal or a notebook or something that you can write in. Um, it can be a diary or a journal that's dated or not, just be plain pages. I just use a black uh, kind of leatherette moleskin notebook with a elastic band on the outside. And I open it up and I write the date and time on the top. Now, I don't do this every day, but if the feelings, if the negative feelings and the pressure and the anxiety that you're feeling is acute 
well then I would encourage you to do this on a daily basis, maybe even twice a day in the morning and at night. So you open up your notebook and you write. You write about the things that make you feel good, the things that make you smile. If you're writing at night time, write about the things that you found during the day that you noticed that make you feel good, that were positive in the day. There might only be one or two or three, but those one or two or three lead to four, five and six. And all of a sudden you've got a list of stuff that happened during the day that that it's not even that were remarkable. They can be otherwise insignificant, but they they caught your attention and they made you go, ah, look at that, you know, and in the course of your day, look out for them because they're there. But you've got to find some space in your day. You know, if if your duties and your tasks and your whatever it is you're doing are so tightly packed together that you couldn't even fit a slip of paper between them, well, then you're too busy and you need to dial it back a little bit. Notice the things that are going well and record them at night time before you go to sleep. So this allows you to finish on a positive note. You're not going to bed under the stress and the difficulty of the day. You're bringing your mind to the things that you you actually value and make you feel good about yourself. Um, likewise, in the morning when you get up, first thing, you might swing your legs out of bed. You leave your little notebook or your diary or journal on the side of the bed in your bedside table. Pick it up and write. Write it. Write down the things that you're grateful for. That they have to be there. They exist. What are you grateful for? The fact that you have a bed to sleep in when many others don't, and a house or an apartment that you live in, that and when many many don't. Pick them out. They're there. Things that you're you're ignoring under ordinary conditions. That if you just notice for a second, help you appreciate the value of life as it is for you now, write them down. Also write about how you, you would like the day to go. And I'm, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about planning. I'm not talking about detail necessarily. Write about how it would make it feel. So we're talking about writing in terms of your feelings, not in terms of ones and zeros and winning stuff or you can if you want, but only if it makes you feel good when you write about them. Okay, so the feeling associated with the thought that you're writing down on the page is really important. If you feel pressured to achieve the thing that you're writing down, you don't write it. Do you understand what I'm saying? So we're writing about things no matter how small. So, for example, you want your coffee to be good. I'm going to go down. I'm going to make my breakfast now and it's going to be a nice breakfast. I'm going to the coffee's going to be nice the milk is going to be good in the cup whatever you know uh i'm going to i'm going to poach an egg and it's going to be the best poached egg right simple things like this and if you get into the habit of doing this writing about your your life as you wish it to turn out today today will be good yesterday might not have been great but today is going to be better and at least leave the door open to the possibility that things could be better today and throughout the day, take those moments to just take a deep breath. And uh, let's say you have a sales meeting or you're meeting with a client or you're uh, meeting with a boss in work. Take a few minutes to just take a deep breath and imagine that meeting going well. Right. 
you're not planning the detail. You're just you're you're paving the way. And this is not nonsense. This is this works. This it works because it puts you in a better place. And when you're in a better place, well, then you're asking better things to occur. You can't get to a good place from a bad journey. So if you're all the time throughout your day or the majority of your day, imagining things going bad or remembering how it went bad yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before and that dictating to you how the next day is going to go, well, then that's how it's going to go. Um, Try it. Start writing about how you would like your day to go. Start reflecting on your day and picking out the things that went well. Start to bring your mind to the things that you value and see how it changes. See how the nature of your experience will begin to reflect the thoughts that you've decided to focus on. It might not always be the case, but at least you're giving yourself the opportunity to change um, the nature of your own experience. And because otherwise, what's the alternative? You stick with how things have always gone and you stay where you are. And that's no good. So take time in the morning and in the evening. Take the space rather than the time. Take the space to just chill and think about things that, think about nothing, if you will, uh, or think about things that make you feel good while thinking about them. Um, That's my advice. It works. worked for me. I wouldn't be giving you something that I didn't try myself and that I don't do myself because... uh, we all have challenges in life and all any of us wants is, you know, the feeling of that this is worthwhile, this activity that I'm doing and I'm not just grinding and pressing widgets, you know. So that's all I've got for you on this episode. Thanks for listening in. Um, I did have another episode planned today, but I went down this road because it just got a hold of me. Um, next episode, previous episode, previously planned episode will go out next. All right, that's all I've got for you. Thanks for listening in uh, to this episode of the Sunday Letters podcast. Uh, I'll see you during the week. Mind yourselves.